This episode is brought to you in part by Modern in Denver Magazine and Docomomo, Colorado. Now, on to the show. Jim found that I was doing some moonlighting, and he said, Alan, it's about time you decided to start your own firm. You sued you on out the and door? And kicked me out. Were you ready for it? No. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Well, hey, how about a little welcome back here? Uh, we've we've had a long pause, remember? Welcome back to Architecting. <laughs> it's it's like it's left my life for so much, right? Uh, well, I yeah. We, yes, we, we, we've been away for a little bit, uh, but uh, I had a lot of big plans about things I was going to get done and other things, and uh, none of them really got done. But we also had a lot of fun uh, in-person architecting events. We had some happy hours and some, some live panel stuff, and now we're back. And this is so. In this episode here is one of those live live panels, a live interview, and it was done with uh, Docomomo, Colorado. Uh, and if you haven't, if you don't know about them, go check them out. Uh, cool, cool organization. What does Docomomo stand for? Uh, pause while I look it up, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm looking it up here. Uh, so. Docomomo stands for the International Committee for Documentation and Conservation of Buildings, Sites, and Neighborhoods of the Modern Movement. Oh, I was just going to say that. I don't know why they don't. I don't know why they shorten it. Uh, no, but it, it's a cool. It's a cool organization here. Uh, just really into modern architecture and celebrating that especially here in Colorado so uh, they have a, a monthly event a monthly meeting and they'll they'll do different different things like have a presentation or go uh, tour a building or something like that and so for this podcast here we had a special event in concert with them where we interviewed the architect Alan Gass nice yeah, so Alan is just a it, you'll you'll hear more of his credits and and an introduction in the in the interview here, but uh, he's really just a wealth of of knowledge and experience within the uh, Colorado community. He he's worked for just a ton of architects uh, from I.M. Pay to the Architects Collaborative to James Sudler Anderson Architects, which is now uh, Anderson Mason Dale Lee Harris Pomeroy. Harry Teague, and then uh, his own company as well in there. Yeah. It's a decent list. Yeah. He's he's had decades and decades of architecture. Uh, So, yeah, this is a fun fun talk. Uh, Good to get back into it. Check it out. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Enjoy. Adam Wagoneer is the host and producer of Architecting, a Denver-based architect, co-founder of Further Architecture, and visiting lecturer at CU Denver. He holds two master degrees in architecture from Yale and Kansas State University. He has worked for high-profile architects around the world in the U.S., Netherlands, and Mexico. As for Mr. Gass, 
in my opinion, a man who needs no or little introduction. A living legend in Colorado, a modern master architect with a body of work spanning nearly 70 years. Most of us in this room know him well. But tonight's interview, in general, will be the introduction we'll give. So join me in a round of applause of welcoming these two fellows to our chapter meeting. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Josh, for that introduction. I thought I was going to have to introduce myself a little bit, but you hit all the points. And uh, thank you, yeah, to Doko Momo here. I've been here for just a long, long time, like uh, six years, you know, so long. And so I'm, I'm definitely still learning and, and finding people and finding groups. And this is a, a great group that weirdly I didn't know about. And uh, so thanks to Adam and to Bree for reaching out and uh, connecting with me. Just real quick. So yeah, I, I've been here six years, something like that. But just really interested in the Colorado collective of, of architects and, and design world. And so about three weeks before the pandemic hit, I started to do an in-person podcast show with the goal of just interviewing Colorado architects and designers. And with the idea that probably not very many people would listen to it, but the idea of sort of documenting the time and the place and the people that are here and, and the stories and getting deeper into these architects and, and the names that we know or that we don't know, but the the built environment that they've they've created. And so in the last two and a half years, we've done 53 episodes with architects and really starting to build a community around this and doing more live events and, and live things to get people together. And so this is exciting. This is uh, the second in-person interview I've done for the podcast. And the first one I think had about four or five students that were that had to be there because their professor was being interviewed. Uh, so this is a little bit better. But obviously, we have a, a great guest here and somebody that a lot of people are interested in. And uh, I have to admit, you know, I mostly been sort of interviewing sort of younger architects, people coming up or sort of right in the middle of their career. And I have not done enough uh, diving into the, the history of, of Colorado architects. And so very glad to have Alan here and uh, get to know him a little better. So, thanks. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So I told you we'd have a nice, easy flowing interview, but I like to start it off with a, a real shocking, hard... Can I start with an anecdote first? Oh, please. Yes. Since you, I didn't know you went to Yale. Oh boy. Here we go. I'm not sure I know where that place is. But, uh, anyway, uh, there was a guy named Paul Rudolph probably you didn't know. Who I didn't know? Yeah. Yeah, we we just didn't pass each other. Yeah, yeah I didn't think so. But uh, he designed the building that you went to school in. And uh, he was also dean of the school at one time. But long before that, he came to Cambridge and was a design critic in our third year design class. And he didn't have an office in Cambridge. And he had a... a uh, he had the task of designing the Wellesley Fine Arts Building. So he set up an office in our third-year architecture class. And we got to watch every step of his design of the Wellesley Arts Building. What was the studio project? Was it an art museum? You work on this corner. You work on project, this The project that he gave us was a project that he had in progress already, hmm. which was 
a U.S. embassy in Amman, Jordan. Mm. That was the project he gave us. So, okay, let's not go that far yet. No, I, I didn't I wanna, think I'll you get there. I'll get there. <laughs> but I, I like to start with an awkward question first. So this question of who are you? So if you had to answer that question in two sentences, what would you say? Well, I'm a fourth-generation Denverite. I went to East Denver High School. I went to Harvard University for seven years to find out that I'm going to be an architect. And uh, I've practiced architecture in Denver mostly and a little bit in New York and a little bit in Aspen during the past 70 years. We got the whole episode right there. What was Denver like when you were growing up? What was the feeling of it? Well, Denver was a cow town. Everybody knows that. Yeah. I mean, literally. And, of course, even now, uh, when, when the stock show arrives in Denver, uh, they drive the cows down 17th Street. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Denver was uh, not, o- not only that, but we had a stockyards that actually fed cattle at that time, and we had a, a number of slaughterhouses. So the winter winds always came from the north, into Denver over the stockyards. Every time we could smell the stockyards, we knew we were going to have a snowstorm. Hmm. So where, where did you grow up? What area? I, of- I was born in a, a hospital that is no more called St. Luke's. Hmm. There's a housing development there now. And uh, the first perhaps year or so, I'm not sure how much time, I lived in a small apartment house uh, next to my grandfather's house at he had developed, he had built actually on 15th and Emerson, hmm. the house that he actually bought from uh, the heirs of an, another famous, much more famous architect, Frank Edbrook, was a house designed by William Lang, which is now known as the Gargoyle House. Hmm. And it's also a Denver landmark. So I, I had a lot of experience in that house since... Uh, I went to religious school at Temple at the old Temple Emanuel on Seventeenth and on on Sixteenth and Pearl, and uh, I would walk up to my grandfather's house and stay there for lunch, and my father would then pick me up there. So even after we moved to Ninth and Colorado Boulevard, I still did that. And then uh, there's a huge housing development right there at Ninth and Colorado Boulevard. Across the street was the medical school. Well, actually, across the street from where we lived, which is hard for any of you to, to recognize now, um, it was a golf driving range. It's just bare prairie. Hmm. And uh, the closest building straight ahead was a, an enclosed tennis court that was built to uh, accommodate the doctors at Colorado General Hospital, hmm. which hadn't crossed Ninth Avenue at that point. Then... We were there till I was six, and then um, we moved to Park Hill, and that's where I grew up. Hmm. You know, it's always interesting when I hear Denver was a cow town, is a cow town, was a cow town. I grew up in a cow town, like in the middle of Kansas with like 10,000 people. Uh And, you know, to say like, yeah, I I grew up in a cow town, but then there's these pieces of architecture, right, that that you're around and that you're surrounded by. That make a felt impact on you growing up, the the built environment, or is something you came to? You got to understand how I became an architect, and that's a sort of convoluted path because I had never be, intended to become an architect. Hmm. 
I uh, was impressed by a chemistry laboratory that the son of a friend of my father's had in, in his basement, and I, I got two chemistry sets one time as gifts, and and uh, I became very interested in science, and I, I continued with my interest in science. At the same time, I became interested in photography, and I found that that uh, my science could benefit me in in learning about photography, and I learned how to mix the, the solutions that we used when we actually used film to to take photographs. And I had these two hobbies for a long time. When I was in high school, uh, I was encouraged to, actually by one of my friends who was also interested in chemistry and photography, uh, actually my oldest friend. He entered a an award uh, competition, which at that time was called the Westinghouse Science Talent Competition. He was one of the top 40 award, award hmm. winners his year. He was a year ahead of me in school. And uh, he made the decision to go to Harvard University. And uh, I had thought of, of going to MIT. Hmm. Uh, I was going to apply there and several other schools. But that following year, I applied to the Westinghouse. And I actually I wasn't as smart as he was. I got an honorable mention, though. Hmm. There were 250 of those. Hmm. And he convinced me to go to Harvard instead of MIT. So I guess I can blame my friend for convincing me to go to Harvard because it was at Harvard where I actually discovered that I was interested in, in architecture. Uh, I wandered into one of the buildings at Harvard. I wandered into all the buildings at Harvard as a normally curious 18-year-old. And uh, I wandered into the architecture school, which was the Graduate School of Design at that time. Not the same building they're in now. Right, yeah. Um, and there was this elderly gentleman who was, had a bunch of students and reviewing projects. And those projects were, were for a, a, uh, a modern design cathedral. And he was criticizing their designs as, as being really unusual for the traditional concept of a cathedral. But, of course, he, it was a lot of tongue-in-cheek, which I didn't understand at that time. This uh, elderly gentleman, it turned out, was Walter Gropius. Uh, I didn't know that. I never knew who he was. I was always sort of in, interested in buildings in Denver. I'd, I was really entranced by Denver City Hall, actually, and the Equitable Building, which is still one of my favorites. But, you know, they never got to the point of saying, do I want to try to do that? But uh, So what, what was it about Gropius that... Well, this whole concept of a modern design cathedral, and here was architecture. We had a few sort of radical architects in Denver, a guy named Burnham Hoyt and a guy named Vic Hornbein. Mm -hmm. I, really, I didn't really know their names. I'd heard, heard of them, but mm -hmm. only in passing. And uh, uh, this was the end of my freshman year, actually. I was majoring in chemistry. And uh, it began to work on me. And I said, chemistry and art, art and science, design. And I knew that I, I had uh, actually uh, was a photographer on the yearbook for three years. 
And then I was uh, assistant editor. Actually, I put together the yearbook. So I basically designed the yearbook my senior year in high school. So all of these things got to work on me, graphic design. <laughs> and I said, you know, I may be in the wrong field. The, the culmination of everything. After 10 into... years of going in the wrong direction, maybe I should <sighs> talk to the uh, undergraduate uh, uh, sponsor of the program in what was called architectural sciences. Hmm. Harvard did not have an undergraduate degree in, in architecture. And uh, so I, I met with him. His name was Norman Newton. Norman Newton had been president of the uh, American Institute of Landscape Architects. And uh, also, uh, some of you may have heard of the Monuments Men during the uh. Second World War. Norman Newton was one of the monuments men huh. in Italy. Wow. And it was was his job to determine whether, and the one thing I remember that he told us was it was his job to determine whether the Ponte Vecchio could be blown up in Florence. <laughs> and uh, the determination was no, because you couldn't run a tank over it. Yeah. It's not disposable, yeah. It was, he, of course, he... He did everything he could do. I, I think ultimately the, the Nazis were able to run some smaller tanks over it. But that was something that stuck in my mind. But Norman Newton suggested that I talk to some of the people there, which I did. And then I had a friend, and I was a sophomore by that time, and and uh, I had a friend in, in Dunster House where I lived uh, who was a year ahead of me who was in, in architecture school, and he said, he invited me to go to a, a lecture that Walter Gropius was giving hmm. to uh, a basic design class that he was just innovating at Harvard. And the one thing that really threw me over the cliff was Walter Gropius's talk because the first thing he said was, I've been on the visiting committee for the Air Force Academy, and uh, uh, we went out to Colorado Springs to look at the proposed site for the academy. And we had this experience of driving down to Colorado Springs on this perfectly ghastly street, which was lined with cheap bars and motels, no <laughs> sidewalks. I knew, oh God, I knew exactly what yeah. he was talking about was South Santa Fe Drive because that was the only route to Colorado hmm. Springs uh, until... I-25 was built, which was, I think, when I was in grad. They started I-25 when I was in graduate school. So uh, that threw me over the cliff. Hmm. <laughs> that made me decide, yes, I'd like to uh, to go into architecture. The idea of, of just how you could sculpt your, your physical environment and especially your home. Yeah, you know, like, I could actually yeah. make a contribution to my city, hmm. which I loved and I still do. And so you you threw out the chemistry set. You picked no. up picked up the no. no because I I had transformed the chemistry set mm. into into a darkroom, into a photographic darkroom. Yeah, and I still had chemicals because I was mixing uh, developers and fixers and stop mm. baths and all kinds of things. You got into architecture in undergrad, and then you went right to graduate school. Yes, after I did. That. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you got the taste of Gropius, this amazing figure. You get into architecture. By the time you graduate, 
What is the thing that most surprised you about the school and about the education? Well, the first thing you've got to know is you walk into Harvard and you, you look around at the people who are your roommates and then their friends and their friends of friends. You say, why the hell did I get in? There's all these brilliant kids. I mean, it's no Yale, but yeah, it's okay. But uh... Well, my friend actually, after he got his Ph.D. in, in chemistry, taught at Yale for about a year, I think, until he, he moved on. So this was, you graduated in like early 50s? I graduated from college in 53, and, and uh, uh, because by that time, by the time I graduated, Gropius was about to retire, and Jose Cert oh, yeah. uh, took over as dean of the Graduate School of, of Design, and uh, Cert did not have a very good rapport with students, and he took over during my third year, and the people in the in the thesis group at Harvard, you had to take a thesis to qualify for, or had to write a thesis, qualify for the bachelor's degree in architecture, and it was a graduate degree. And then if you wanted to take another uh, another year, if, if you qualified, uh, you could join the master's class, which was usually taught by the chairman of the Department of Architecture. Mm. Gropius was not the dean of the school, actually. He was chairman of the Department of Architecture. But Cert took over as, as dean and chairman of the Department of Architecture. Uh, he did not have a very good rapport, and the first thing he did was do away with the master's with a bachelor's degree entirely. Hmm. And everybody from the undergraduate school who had gone through the program and expected to take the thesis program was thrust into the master's program. And the master's program was designed originally by Gropius for, for people who had had experience in the field and were coming back for, for extra training in design. And so... Uh, during our year, we who had come through the program and had not done a thesis and had not been exposed to to the professional field in any way. I, I actually had been because I had summer jobs who were, which were terrific, and I'll, we can go into those later. But um, I had no, not even an inkling of what kind of competition we were getting into in this incredible master's class. I had in the master's class, there were three students from Japan. One had been an architect with the Japanese broadcasting system, and lo and behold, he had been a kamikaze pilot hmm. during the Second World War. Hmm. I mean, these guys were 35 years old. Yeah. Another had been sent there by one of the universities in Japan, and uh, each one of them had incredible qualifications. And there were people from the University of Minnesota also produces exceptional architects. And we had several graduates of the University of Minnesota there who had all had experience and hmm. on and on and on. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we were faced with this competition and halfway through the year, CERT came to us former undergraduates and said, you're not performing up to snuff. Hmm. If you don't do the next project properly, we're going to have to reinstitute the thesis program. Oh, well, we didn't know what to do, so we just did what we could do. Hmm. 
Uh, I was fortunate, and I was able to remain in the master's class, but a number of my classmates from my own class at Harvard College were brought back into the thesis program. Anyhow, uh, it was a kind of a rough time in, in the Graduate School of Design at that point. Uh, during, during the master's program, uh, I was elected to student council, and uh, we were so mad at CERT, we, we were successful when the Architectural Accrediting Board met in the spring. We were successful in getting Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design deaccredited <laughs> for one year. Uh, nice. Uh, her cert, CERT was never a very good friend. Wait, he lasted a long time there, right? He did last a long time, absolutely. And he learned, actually. He learned? Yeah, yeah because you taught him I, the lesson? I went back for a reunion maybe 10, 15 years ago, and uh, uh, the people I met who had, who had known CERT later really thought the world of him. Hmm. And I, I'm not saying I didn't learn from him, because I did. Hmm. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how to be a person hmm. and yeah. how to design. CERT had worked for Corbusier. Yeah, I mean, that seems like such an exciting time. It was exciting because also at that time, CERT was designing uh, the Miro Museum in Barcelona. Mm. Miro was a friend of his. Hmm. And he was also uh, designing Miro's, Miro's home and studio in Mallorca. Hmm. And those were all being done in our drafting rooms because <laughs> CERT didn't have an office in Cambridge either at that time. That is like, you know, it's the peak of modernism there that, you, yeah. that you're experiencing and in this place with like... You it is. I mean, we were experiencing things that really hardly anybody ever experiences in a lifetime. Yeah. And then I'm so ex interested when, when you hit that point, you hit that high point of academia and architecture in school, and then they say, okay, here's your degree, kick you out the door. You know, like what happens then, right? I well, mean, I had a bit of good fortune. In the, in the second year of the Graduate School of Design, there, there had been a grant for the second-year students to take a trip to New York City and observe the architecture there. And uh, so, of course, we, we had a sort of Cook's tour of New York City. I had uh, I'd been in New York a couple of times. I, I knew a little bit about it. I had, I had an aunt who sort of shepherd, shepherded me around New York City during my freshman year in college for my spring vacation. And uh, so I knew a little bit about it. But we had a trip, and the outstanding thing in the trip, I mean, yes, we went through the UN, which is just being finished, and and things like that. But And, of course, the Empire State Building and Rockefeller Center, or Saks Fifth Avenue, I don't know. Anyway, uh, we were brought up to uh, William Zeckendorf's office, to the Webb and Knapp office in the building which he had had Pei renovate the penthouse for. And mm. We were shown around the penthouse by Pei's partner, Harry Cobb, and they were not independent architects at that time. They were William Zeckendorf's kept architects. Mm. <laughs> they were the architectural division of Webb and Knapp. Mm. And Pei was beholden, actually, to William Zeckendorf for the incredible start that he got. In any case, uh, we were being shown through the office, and it was a spectacular place, needless to say. And some of you may have seen pictures of it or been there. But uh, 
they had a model of the Mile High Center, which was IMPE's first big project, which was being built in Denver. And it was a three-building project, which was more like a school project than a than a developer's project. But Zickendorf was that kind of developer, it turned out. Um, I casually mentioned to Harry that I was from Denver. And uh, I don't think he ever got my name. But lo and behold, when I came home for spring vacation that summer, I was told I had a phone call from a Mr. Sink. I had no idea who he was. But my mother had taken the call, and it turned out to be Chuck Sink, who was who became a very prominent architect yeah. in Denver and a good friend. And uh, Chuck said, uh, when I called him, would you like to be the assistant to the supervising architect of the Mile High Center? I said, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I had worked in an architectural office before. I'd, the year before, I'd worked in Jim Sadler's office mm. as a sort of errand boy file clerk. <laughs> And I learned a lot from Jim, actually. And then, and lo and behold, the next uh, the next year, I was working with Eason Leonard, who was called back halfway through the summer to run the office in New York, and he he became the the second partner. And then uh, he was replaced by Leonard Jacobson, and Eason and Leonard in. Interesting. Eason Leonard and Leonard Jacobson had worked together in architectural office in Philadelphia, hmm. uh, but and in New York as well. And um, uh, Leonard Jacobson later became a partner of IMP as well. Hmm. So I worked with them, and I worked with Chuck all that summer. Chuck was the associate architect on that project, and then when Mile High Center was finished, Chuck became also the associate architect on the Courthouse Square development, which was, the, at that time, the May DNF department store and the Hilton Hotel, mm. which is now called the Sheraton. But uh, when, he, when Eason left, he, he said, you know, since you're, you're going to be up in Cambridge when you're in school, if you want to come down to New York during a, a vacation or, or enter them between semesters. You want a fun spring break? Yeah. Yeah. yeah come on down. Uh, come down. We'll put you to work for yeah. a week or two and... And you can get some more experience. Huh. I, so for two more years, I did that. Hmm. And then after I got my degree, I was going to Europe, and I had a job, which I was, thought I would take for six or eight months, but I didn't. But uh, Eason said, if you got any time before you go to Europe, just come down to New York, and we'll put you to, w to work until you until you sail into Europe. And hmm. so I worked in, in the Web and Nap architectural office for another couple of weeks at that time, <laughs> working on various bits and pieces of projects. Actually, one of my sojourns in New York uh, was with Harry Cobb. I worked for him for a week, and my task was to do the first drawings of the MayDNF department store facade. <laughs> so that was something I still have copies of. Again, like a, a very exciting time at a later a very influential oh, firm, I, right? And because how old was I and Pay? He, he wasn't. I and Pay was thirty five years 35, old. Thirty five, right? And yeah. you're getting in there. And yeah. what was the feeling, you know, of being in that office 
so young in its in its history. Well, yeah. you've got to realize who was in that office. Yeah. And you, you didn't think about it at the time because you didn't know who they were, right? Right. Well, IMP had just hired a guy named Jim Freed mm. out of Mies van der Rohe's office because uh, Jim had gone to uh, to IIT and had gone as a super student of, I, of Mies. He had gone to work for Mies and Philip Johnson on the Seagram building. Mm. And the Seagram building had just been finished. So IMP hired Jim Freed out of Mies van der Rohe's office. And Jim was, he was just about a year older than I was. Mm. And he and I worked together in the office when I came back to New York mm. on the Kipps Bay Plaza project, which was IMP's first port-in-place concrete project in New York City. But I, I've got to mention, Jim, Jim Freed was only one of those people. Most of you have heard of Warren, Warren Plattner. You've seen Noel Furniture's Plattner design chairs and tables. Mm. Warren Plattner was in IMP's office. Mm. And then you've probably all heard of John Hayduck. Mm. John Hayduck oh. was in IMP's office at that time. Mm. So there were really some pretty exceptional people in that office who had not yet bloomed in their own right. Right, yeah. And and so you were you were in that environment, and then at a certain point, right? You 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 stay in in Denver, and you kind of break away from that firm. What's no no? no? I, I was work. I worked in New York for a year. Okay. And I I did want to eventually come back to Colorado. I got a, a job. The um, Walter Gropius's firm, the Architects Collaborative, mm, mm-hmm. had an office in Colorado Springs. Oh really? But they were not doing architecture. They were doing planning for Air Force bases. Ah. The Air Defense Command, uh, along with NORAD and, mm. and uh, Peterson Field and all of that was, and the Air Force Academy was under construction at that time, was all going on at the same time. And, and our, uh, and so I went down, I, that was a, an opportunity for me to get back to Colorado. I would have stayed with IMP forever probably, but I really wanted to, the opportunity came to come back to Colorado, so I did. And that, was, that really wasn't an interesting job for me, despite the fact of the Architects Collaborative, because there was no architecture and the Air Force bases were rather limited. I did make a few friends there. I made, met a guy named Cliff Nakata there. And some of you may know may have known Cliff Nakata. He was an architect in Colorado Springs for many years. Uh, he was our client. Hmm. He worked for the Air Defense Command hmm. and stayed. But uh, I came back to Denver, and since I had worked for Jim Sadler before, I had I uh, interviewed with him, and he, he hired me. He said, We're, we've just gotten a commission to do the uh, new federal courthouse and office building in Denver. Hmm. And uh, why don't you come along with us? We've partnered with uh, Fisher and Davis to... Uh, form a, new, a firm, a joint venture firm, to do the uh, new courthouse and office building uh, next to the post office. And uh, so why don't you come along and we'll put you to work. And uh, lo and behold, I, I joined them in a special office they had in the, in the uh, former First National Bank building, which had been taken over by the American National Bank. Uh, and Jim had put a gigantic ghastly 
cast in place or a precast concrete facade over this traditional building. <laughs> and uh, he'd already, he was finishing that, and he was he, his office was it was in the uh, the Denver Motor Motor Garage uh, that's used by the Brown Palace on Glenarm Street. Hmm. There was a penthouse there, and lo and behold, Jim's office was in one of the spaces that were for rent. There were offices, and the, across the hall was the office of Bill Mucho, hmm. <laughs> which was interesting. <laughs> so I was going to say it, it had to be hard going from. I am pay and the work that that was going and and having the draw to come back home. There, there's another connection there yeah. too because while I was wor- that summer I was working in Denver for Easton Leonard, Jim Sudler was also doing the interior of the Denver U.S. National Bank, which was in the former Montgomery Ward store huh. that was part of the Mile High Center and was the exterior was designed by Harry Cobb. Hmm. So that's funny. Uh, I did see Jim during that summer as well. Yeah. But I was going to say, you know, that the courthouse building is, I think, one of the best buildings and just so pure in its in its design, say, and, and so coming. I was the first employee on it, and I worked on the design yeah. with Jim Sidler and Rod Davis. The first sketch and just built it like you d- designed it? And... Actually, I was there when the design started. Hmm. <laughs> and so... But then at a certain point, right, you go off and you, you start your own firm? No, actually I did. Uh, Jim, during lap, lapses in the design work, uh, Jim asked me to design a house in the polo club for a guy who was president of the most prominent uh, real estate firm in Denver at that time called Van Scock and Company. Hmm. And has anybody heard of Van Scock and Company? Any of you realtors? There we go. Oh, yep. good. Great. <laughs> well, Tom Knowles was the president of Van Scocken Company. He was a Harvard graduate, a very austere guy from the Boston area. And he'd married Mary Kuntz, who was the daughter of the one of the grandsons of the founder of the Colorado National Bank. So <laughs> this was, and the house was in a new development in the polo grounds, uh, which was just being converted by... Falkenberg Construction Company uh, into a, a super high-end residential area, and uh, and they had one of the first. They bought one of the first uh, sites hmm. in the Polo Grounds, actually. So I was given the task of designing that house, which I did, and I worked with Falkenberg. Bill Falkenberg was an architect, and he had a draftsman working with him. So I had a. I worked with his draftsman. Instead of one of Jim Sudler's draftsmen putting the plans together, uh, that house has since been cannibalized to the point that it's unrecognizable, which is unfortunate. It's one, mm. one of my favorites. But so that 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 sort of commission into single family. No, I had actually, I was actually doing some uh, some night work in the process while I was working for Jim, and I had done a speculative housing development for. A, for a developer, which never came to pass, but I have some nice drawings to show of it, and uh, and and I was about to take over the, my first commission, my first real personal commission. Hmm. I had uh, while I was in school, I should go back to school because 
my mo- my favorite aunt, one of my mother's sister, four sisters, wanted me to design a house for her while mm. I was in school, which I did in Montclair and Eleventh uh, and and Olive. And uh, while I was in school, I designed that house and and I did a whole series of drawings and and the house still stands, and uh, my aunt's granddaughter still lives in the house. Mm. So I'm. I had already built one house mm. by the time I came back to Denver. I obviously didn't oversee the construction because I was still in school. But it came out pretty well, actually. Mm. So then what, what made you start your own firm? Yeah, uh, Jim found that I was doing some moonlighting. And he said, Alan, it's about time you decided to start your own firm. Should you on out the and door? he kicked me out. Were you ready for it? No. No? <laughs> no. And uh, unfortunately, that was... I wasn't ready. Why wasn't I ready? Well, I had already started to build my house, and I got married just before he, he told me to go. And I had no money, and I had no money to finish building the house, and I had to fi- try to find a mortgage. Huh. And in... In the conservative mortgage area of Denver at that time, you know, I was pretty naive. I was totally naive about building anything, you know, from scratch. And <laughs> it was a good education. The uh, first person I went to to try to find a mortgage was Tom Knowles. Who else? And he couldn't find anybody in any of his portfolios who would give me a mortgage on that house. Hmm. Uh, too radical. Hmm. And the, the foundation, the, the, uh, the house has a foundation which comes out of the ground five feet since the lower level is half out of the ground, split entry design. And so uh, all they saw were these concrete walls coming out of the ground, which looked awful. And they looked at the plans and they couldn't understand them. And uh, so he apologized profusely, but said, maybe I'm, I'm a director at the Colorado National Bank, lo and behold. <laughs> Why don't you go over there? So I went over there, and the mortgage loan guy took a look at the plans, and he tried to shop them around, and he said, I can't help you. Finally, my father-in-law was in business in Pueblo, and he had a connection through his bank in Pueblo, we <laughs> call it a national bank. And lo and behold, he was able to swing it for me. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know what I would have done because I already had the house under contract to Clyde Mannon. Huh. And Clyde Mannon was the, um, it was a very prominent modern house developer at that time who had gotten his start as the lead carpenter of Arapahoe Hills, hmm. of Arapahoe Acres, hmm. mm-hmm. which of course is on the, the National Register now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that house. I mean, you know, we're in the meeting before we're talking about it, you know, it's uh, in the process of getting a uh, landmark status and, you know, you, so you're, you're a younger architect, you're working at a firm, you have all these ideas just pent up in your head. The idea of being able to design your own house, you know, it's for, for an architect, right? That's like the kind of top, the, really? the best thing you can do. But it also has to be a little debilitating. I was spurred on by one of my compatriots who had 
who had been working, a few years older than I, who had been working in in the IMP office, the Mile High Center office, a guy named Bill Kopik. And uh, Bill was in the process of building his own house, mm. actually, and that sort of spurred me on. And So what went into that? What, what was the, you have all these pent-up ideas. What was the idea of the house? I mean, and, and it's amazing. You, you still live in it, so it must, you must have worked out pretty well. But Everything has an evolution, right? <laughs> I was living in Park Hill with my parents at that time. Uh, I just moved back from Colorado Springs and was thinking of where was I going to live next? And I thought of building a house. And uh, so I, there was a site at, uh, out between Montview and 22nd Avenue on Colorado Boulevard. It's still vacant, actually, that I wanted to buy. But it was owned by the people who owned the house next door. Hmm. It's never been for sale. I couldn't sell it. Well, but I started to design the house for this site across the street from City Park. Nice view of the park. So I thought, well, I I designed the house. It really, with, I wanted to have a house that was all glass. I had thought initially of Abraham's tent, hmm. which was open on all sides. Hmm. And to greet all people. And then I thought again, I said, hey, you're designing in a city, not out of, not on, on, on the desert. In the desert? In, in Mesopotamia. And uh, so I started to think, how, how do we design a, an urban house that might still be inviting in some way and open? So I have views and both the, the city, which would be the backyard, and some other great view, which at that time was City Park. Well, my, my aunt, for whom I had done the house previously, turned out was a fantastic site finder. Hmm. And she had been at Green Bowers Nursery. Uh, they happened to be friends of our family. And lo and behold, she somehow had been driving on South Harrison Lane and noticed that they had subdivided three lots on South Harrison Lane, and one of them was for sale. And she came back, she called me up one day and said, why don't you go talk to the Wilmores? And uh, I knew Mrs. Wilmore. She she was my first grade religious school teacher. <laughs> so I talked to them, and uh, lo and behold, again, I mean, there are a lot of lo and beholds in my <laughs> story. <laughs> the... The realtor who was representing them was also a friend of our family whose son happened to be in my religious school class. And uh, and her aunt happened to be the principal of the religious school. I knew the whole family. We were all, it was also sort of one happy family. So I looked at this lot and I looked at the survey and all of a sudden the site was 100 by 104, which was great. I mean, nice nice size site, and it had a view straight straight west hmm. of the Rockies. Hmm. There were some houses. Closest house, though, was, was about 150 feet away. And the, this sort of dump area, it was a sanitary landfill, was next to this site. The other two sites up the hill had already been sold. They couldn't sell this site because it was next to a dump, it had two alley easements, two eight-foot alley easements hmm. on the east and the north, 
and it had an easement for an abandoned sewer, which was still active. I mean, the easement was active, uh, running up the north, north, southwest corner. And I took a look at it, and I took a look at the house that I had designed for, for uh, 20th and Colorado Boulevard. And I said, you know, if I, if I turn the house at 45 degrees, it will have an unobstructed view of the mountains. Hmm. And it will fit on that site with all that impediment, hmm. with no problem, and I can landscape the rest of it. So I made a deal with them. I said they wanted seventy five hundred dollars for the site. So they're taking advantage of you, yeah. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, look, the site really is is not as big as it looks because I can't build on that. I don't even know how I could build on it. I have no idea. No, I, I wasn't right. letting on that I had a house designed for the site. Yeah. Come on. So, <laughs> so I made a deal with them for $6,750. <laughs> Actually, I, I offered them $6,500. They wouldn't take that. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, we're... Um, we're coming up here on an hour, and we're we're about like to you're about like thirty years old at this point. But you know, I think it's it's such a great opportunity here because you know this is the first time we met, but there's a lot of people who know you pretty well here. So I wanted to see if there's any audience questions or any other sure. questions that okay. you've got them on the hot seat here. Uh, any anything, whatever. Any other stories or experiences you've been wanting to hear about, Alan? What's your favorite building that you ever designed? The question was, what, what was the, what's the favorite building you've ever well, designed? The favorite saying of architects, of course, is the next one. The next one. Since I'm retired, I can't say that anymore. There's still time. And I won't say that I have a favorite building. The building that probably has gotten, the, well, there are two buildings that have gotten some notoriety, I'll say, that I've designed. One is the Zavislin House, which is presently under interior renovation by... Beth Mosensall over there, and it's gotten some notoriety from from Michael Paglia in Westward. And uh, uh, the other one is a building that I designed when I was with, with John Anderson, which was a building for Century Insurance Company at 4th and Broadway, which took a an existing insurance building, brick, brick uh, split entry building, on a site off the corner, and they wanted, the program was they wanted to uh, integrate that existing building into a new building, which will take their entire staff, which were in four different rental buildings around, and park all the cars that were parked in the parking lot next door on the site. So the idea was to raise the office building up above the parking lot, obviously, and on columns, and then use the existing building as a service building to the office building. So the office building became one entirely open space. Hmm. And the, in the service building, we configured a, a sort of break area, coffee area, and then a storage area, and then a, a, a shipping and receiving area. And... Uh, it was it's the only building I ever I ever designed that was max that was three story it was two and a half stories high 
had five elevator stops. The elevator had doors on both sides. That building is now was now bought by Kurt Fentress and is now his office. Mm-hmm. Mr. Gass, could yeah. you tell us about some of your passive solar? Oh, yeah. Tell us about some of your your well, passive actually, solar work. Most of my work, although my my house is accused of being passively solar, and there are some passive solar elements included. I knew nothing about solar energy at the time, and I fully admit that. I I have John Anderson to thank for for my research in solar energy because uh, it was that was the reason I I joined Anderson Barker Rinker at the time. To uh, he had made a huge leap in finding that they had gotten a commission to do what was called at that time Community College North, and that was right at the time that the Arabs shut off the oil. And they were not assured that they would have any gas to heat that building with when it was finished. Hmm. This was about 1972. He made the leap of faith saying, I'm going to design a solar heated building. And he found a, a mechanical engineer in Albuquerque named Frank Bridgers, who had done a solar-assisted heat pump project on his own office and had gotten some notoriety for hmm. it. And so he had, he had already made a, an alliance with, with Bridgers, but he had nobody to do any research in solar energy. We'd known each other for quite a while, and, and uh, he asked me if I, I, I had just uh, um, left uh, uh, Jim Johnson's office. Uh, they were changing their, the configuration of their operation and moving, and so it was an opportunity for me to go somewhere else. Hmm. And uh, he asked me if I'd do, take on a research project in solar energy. And so what I did was I, I did what I call my six-foot library of, sol- of everything known about solar energy <laughs> at that time, hmm. which was very, very little. I mean, the, there were very few books written about solar energy. There were, there were some, a lot of guys doing experimental work and passive solar energy, of course, and Drop City was mm-hmm. under construction in mm-hmm. southern Colorado, which I, I later found out that the guys who built Drop City got the, uh, the automobile tops from my father-in-law in Pueblo. Hmm. My father-in-law was a metal salvage dealer. Hmm. <laughs> and much later I found that out. And there, then there were the guys in, in Arizona who were working, and Ed, Ed Masria was starting to do his work in solar energy. Dick Crowther was doing a lot of initial work in, in solar energy in Denver, and I was talking to him. And, and uh, uh, Jim Hunter had done a, a solar project for, uh, for George Lurf, who was a, a solar researcher at the University of Denver. And... Uh, so there was a lot of stuff being done at that time, but Community College of Denver North Campus was three hundred thousand square feet. Right. Yeah. And, and it was quite a bit to chew. So I I started the the work in solar energy, and in the when I finished the the basic part of the research, he said, you know, we, we're going to need somebody to help us design this building. 
And so he asked me to come on staff at ABR, which I did. And uh, I uh, ended up uh, designing most of the interiors hmm. at uh, Community College of Denver. And, and uh, then uh, there was an addition. There were two additions put on it at the same time. There was a, an early childhood center, which was a separate building. And uh, there was a, a center for the, dis- for the disabled so I had to do some more research. I, I designed that building, which was just a, an addition. Of the, hmm. the Community College of Denver, which most of you know is a front-range community college, is a thousand feet long. So and and uh, three stories high, and one of those stories is underground. Hmm. So and actually, two of the stories are underground from 112th Avenue, and it's three stories in the back. The hill goes down. And it has, it was designed, one of my tasks was was uh, the interior, but the other task, of course, was since it was an active solar project, I had to do the research on how, how do we find a, 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 a solar collector that we can build 35,000 square feet of. Hmm. Who makes such a collector? Well, it turned out uh, with working with the guys at Bridger's office and myself, we found nobody that had a commercially available solar collector who could hmm. do the job. So together we wrote a specification for a solar collector. Basically, the specification was that it, it had to have a, have a certain life, life expectancy. Here was the space that it would occupy. And... Uh, have at it. And we put it out, I think, to about five sheet metal contractors and some solar contractors and ended up with, a, I think, a Texas sheet metal company hmm. who designed a solar collector that was like 20 feet high hmm. and four feet wide. And uh, we put 35,000 square feet of solar collector and, hmm. and we uh, installed Frank Bridger's uh, solar-assisted heat pump with a 100,000-gallon tank of water buried behind the building on the north side. That was our heat sink. Did it work? It worked fine. Yeah. Until uh, in the 80s, I had left Anderson by that time. I'd gone to work in New York, and I was, I'd promised my wife I'd only stay there five years. So by the time I came back, I uh, actually ended up in Aspen working for Harry Teague mm. as project architect on on Harris Hall for the Aspen Institute, or Aspen Music Festival at that time. And uh, when I came back to Denver, I went to see the uh, Jerry Wartko, who was at that time head of community colleges of Denver, and he was an old friend. And uh, he said, Alan, you're going to be disappointed, but we're taking the solar collectors off of Front Range Community College. And... uh, they just didn't want the maintenance on them hmm. of glass breaking. And gas was cheap, cheap again. And, and gas was still very cheap. And uh, actually, I was discouraged. Coming back just as a sidelight, I was discouraged on doing extra insulation or double pane windows in my house uh, by my struck by my mechanical engineer Francis Stark uh, because uh, gas was never going to be expensive. 
Let's see, we have any other questions? How do you feel about the state of architecture in Denver today? And where would you like to see it go in the future? So yeah, let me repeat that. So uh, the question was, uh, how do you feel about the, the state of, of architecture in, in Denver and where do you want to see it go? Well, I feel optimistic from, from the younger architects that I see practicing now, but from the development side, I see a very dismal future. I see some nice office buildings being built downtown, a few nice apartment projects, but very few residential projects that I could really get excited about. But I, I see a younger cadre of architects coming into Denver now who have exceptional abilities, and if the development crowd would only take advantage of the talent that's here, I think Denver's architecture could benefit. For any developers listening, please uh, yeah. take that to heart. Now and you can go to furtherarchitecture.com and... There. <laughs> no. there are, uh, there's one exciting building going up, of course, which is the one uh, in, in Rhino. It's being done by uh, Davis Partnership and Mad Architects from China. Uh, that's a very exciting office building, I think, that's going up. But I don't see anything else that's very exciting. Because you, you sent me this, your CV, and it's, it's this amazing... 65-page document that I wish we could get into here. No, but, but, you seven. know, we, have, we haven't, we've, we've scratched the surface on so many things, but, you know, one of those things, right, you, you were very involved in, in the urban design of Denver and the, and yeah. the sculpting of, of our urban environment. And, and I think like that question of what, what is good architecture or what, why is that project good or, That's you know. my least successful part of my hmm. efforts. I spent a very great degree of my, my career trying to improve the the uh, the urban design quality in Denver when I was st when I still had my own office I was asked to uh, to chair a committee of architects to advise the downtown Denver master plan committee and this was 1963 the, and uh, so we put together a team, and we were given a team of we were given a space and by the master plan committee in a building which has now been demolished in downtown, and we put together some really interesting ideas for developments in downtown. At that time, there were three three uh, major projects that downtown and near downtown were that were being considered, and we were asked to think about sites for two of them. One of them was Denver General Hospital, which, of course, had its site already. But the other two were a new convention center and a new, a new some kind of educational campus, which really had no program and no, no concept or anything. And so um, we thought of how we could improve uh, the pedestrian situation downtown which nobody seemed to care much about because downtown was packed with pedestrians and we had, you know, we had major department stores. We had the May Company. We had Daniels and Fisher. We had Jocelyn's. We had Gano Downs. We had Newsteaders and the Denver Dry Goods and J.C. Penney's. We had, this was the commercial, downtown Denver was a commercial center of the entire Rocky Mountain 
and plains area, probably a 500-mile radius, besides being the livestock capital of the world, practically, uh, at that time. So uh, we put together a plan which recognized that the old Denver Auditorium was, uh, was decrepit and really not worth saving at that time. There was no concept of landmark preservation. It didn't come for a long, long time. And uh, there was no concept like that in our heads. And coming out of the Graduate School of Design, there was no concept of, of preservation in my head at all. And uh, so we proposed taking traffic off of 16th Street and making it a pedestrian mall. And if they wanted to take traffic back and forth, they should consider maybe running a subway under 16th Street or putting a tunnel under 16th Street, let the cars run under 16th Street. Traffic engineers insisted that cars would never be taken off of 16th Street. And uh, we suggested the convention center be separated from the uh, auditorium and arena, which we considered fair game at that time, and uh, be placed on the on the axis on two blocks on the axis of California Street. Well, the business leaders and bank presidents who were the client, actually, and these were the chairman of the board of all the com- prime movers in Denver, came together with us and we made our made a preliminary presentation. We never did a full-fledged presentation. They came together and they poo-pooed all of our ideas. They had taken, in the meantime, they had taken a trip to Minneapolis and Lawrence Halpern had just done the uh, the Nicolette Mall in Minneapolis. And here they saw these great bridges coming across <laughs> and taking people from one building to another without having to go down onto the street. <laughs> and uh, so we we wrote our final report, and lo and behold, we were given an award called Civis Princeps <laughs> by Regis College. They gave that every year to some spectacular project in Denver. But the business leaders in Denver junked our project, and I wrote them a, a letter filled with urban design concepts, <laughs> which none of them recognized, of course, uh, saying that the pedestrian was the most important thing in the downtown area, not <laughs> the car. And uh, they ignored that and built all these, started to build all these uh, bridges and enclosed bridges downtown, <laughs> only a couple of which still exist. Now, so that was a total failure. <laughs> You know, but they they got around to listen to you, right? About, no, at least nobody, about 16th Street. No, no, nobody ever asked me. <laughs> it was just, yeah. No, they forgot. Supposedly we have a uh, co-worker of yours from 47 years ago. Uh, do, you, do you have any <laughs> uh, any good Alan? Do you have a good Alan story? What's your best Alan? Oh, this can this can be for the, uh, the bonus segment of the uh, interview. I mean, I think, you know, just from my point of view, I, you know, I, I see, you know, we didn't even get to the AIA Colorado portion, right, where you were one of the, the kind of founding members of, yeah, of well, that. Jim Sudler, I'll, I'll just briefly tell you that, but uh, Jim Sudler basically had the idea that we should 
form an urban design committee and, and uh, called me up and said, do you want to join this committee? I don't have anybody to head it up yet. And so I said, sure. And so I, at that time, I'd been, I was working on transportation and uh, looking at the uh, Denver Regional Transportation Network, which I had been appointed AIA representative to. And uh, um, we wanted to look at, at urban design. Skyline Urban Renewal, it was just, uh, they were just beginning to tear the buildings down in Skyline. Actually, yeah, they were just beginning to tear the buildings down in Skyline. And uh, so we formed a, a committee which evolved into a, a transportation committee for a while because transportation was the main one of the main issues. The uh, There was proposed a, a freeway network which not only included a, a loop freeway around Denver, but included several freeways actually coming through Denver, 6th Avenue from the mountains through through Lowry Field would become a freeway. Hmm. There would be a freeway north and south on Lincoln Street. Uh, there would be a freeway north and south somewhere around Race, perhaps. I don't know. Hmm. I don't remember the, what, what that was now. But uh, so... Uh, High school friend of mine who was an engineer at that time, later become became a very prominent environmentalist in Denver, Bert Melcher. Bert Melcher and I represented different neighborhoods, or he represented a neighborhood, and I represented AIA on this Citizens Advisory Committee, and we we were successful in getting three of the freeways killed, hmm. but we didn't get I C four seventy killed. There's a whole uh, academic study done on our opposition to what was then called I-470. Hmm. And uh, I-470 was, was was to be totally funded by the federal government. We finally convinced uh, Governor Lamb, uh, Kathy Donahue, who later became a city councilman, and I and a group of other people uh, were in uh, Dick Lamb's office when he announced he had put the silver spike into I-470. Hmm. Well, Dick Lamb was sued by everybody in the world, and hmm. uh, he found out that he, while, he could, while he could take some of the federal funds out of I-470, he couldn't take them all out. So the highway department, as it was called at that time, recast the highway into C-470, and the money was taken out of I-470, lo and behold, what did it build? The 16th Street Mall, <laughs> designed by I.M. Payne. There you go. It's just, it's kind of funny. Uh, when I graduated, Harry Cobb invited me to the I.M. Payne office and said, hey, come and come and look and, oh, and, and come get hired. And did I said, you work I that? said, no, I, actually, I'm going to move to Denver. And he said, why would you move to Denver? Why are you going oh. to the Cowtown? But you know, I, I just well, want to let me tell you. Well, now, now I'm going to tell you the yeah, next yeah. the next story about Harry. Hey, good. Bless his soul. He died yeah, last year. His, yeah. Harry wrote a memoir. I don't know whether you've read it. Uh. Uh-uh. And it was a complete memoir of all his entire 
span of his experience. Hmm. It's a nice book. You know, and the early part of it is stuff that I remember because hmm. I actually worked on some of the stuff that he talked about. But he talks about how he and Pei met, how Pei came to Zickendorf, how Pei asked him to join them. And then, then he talks about the office, which he, he says he, he designed the, an elaborate piece of cabinet work as a bar in Zickendorf's private suite upstairs. And uh, then he jumps to Montreal. Well, the Place Ville-Marie in Montreal was, was Harry's first really super project. It was a great, and a great project. And uh, and he he gushes about how Place Ville Marie came to be. In this memoir, this, the name of Denver does not appear. <laughs> well, well, and that's what I was going to say. I'm, and you know, and I we some of us know the reason for that. But I am Pay's work in Denver has been savaged to the point that it can't mm. be identified mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. That's what I was going to sort of end with here, is just, just saying thank you. You had so much opportunity to do so many so many things and so many other things, but coming back and, and diving into the city and really pouring your heart into it for this whole time, I think just this room here, you can see the, the impact that that's, that's made to the city. And I think just to, to end it maybe... What is that last piece of advice? You, you've done your own firm. You've, you've worked for all these amazing firms. You've, you've worked on the environment here, both urban and environmentally. What, what is that one sort of piece of advice you have for, for the next generation of people and architects trying to make a difference in Denver? Perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's been my motto. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. All right, now it's the now it's the after hours uh, sessions. So now we can hear the real stories and <laughs> you can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Aaron Best. Kyle Burner. Emily Childs. Trevor Notzko. Zach Huff. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day -day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.